Well, good morning, church family. So good to see you here today. And if you are a guest with us today, just special welcome to you. My name is Ryan. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at the church. We're going to continue going through this series in the Gospel of John. You just saw that verse on the screen reminding us of the whole reason that this book of John was written, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and through believing we would find life. So believe and live. We're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, John chapter 6. And if you're new to church and new to the Bible, uh, the Bible is made up of 66 books where Jesus is the hero. Uh, He's the one that holds all this together. It's all about him. And John is one of the 66 books in the New Testament, which for simplicity's sake just means the right half of your Bible. So uh, you can go ahead and open it up to right half of your Bible. John chapter 6, that's the big number you find. And the small number of the verses, we'll start in verse 20, or start in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 21. And as you make your way there, I'm reading this passage this week and just thinking about the, the truths of what God's Word is showing us. And it brought to mind this memory of years ago now when I was at a small group up in Raleigh, one that we went to each week, and a group of good friends that we would do life together, talk about Christ and support one another and strengthen one another. And one night when we were just kind of grilling out and and eating some food, we started talking and kind of sharing the story about how Christ saved us, how we believed and lived, right? How we believed in Jesus and how he gave us life, how we confessed our sins and he forgave us. We were all kind of just sharing that story of how that happened because God works in unique ways to do those things, right? And then somebody asked the question, well, that's when we came to faith, but What's an area in your life or a time in your life where you grew in your faith more than any other time in your life? It was fascinating as these 30-something people kind of talked about how God grew them in their, their faith in different times of their life. There was one common theme that went through every single person's personal story of their time in their life where they grew their faith more than others. And it was pain and suffering. It's crazy as it continued to go around and people shared. I mean, one guy's like, I can remember when I grew my faith the most is when I had lost my job and I wondered how in the world am I going to pay my bills and I had to trust the Lord in new ways that I had never had to trust the Lord before. And God provided and so my faith grew. One guy said, well, for me, I can vividly remember it was when I was a teenager and my dad died. And when my dad died, I really struggled with a lot of those things and through that time, and even now, God has continued to grow my faith in the midst of that suffering and pain. Another guy said, well, it was when I took a step of faith to walk out and start a new business. I had a great job and was making a lot of money, and I didn't know what the future held, but I was just going to take a step out and try to start a business. And I didn't know, but it made me trust the Lord in new and incredible ways. It's fascinating. Every one of those had that common theme. Everybody around the room had this common theme of, Our faith grew in some of the most difficult times. Our faith grew more in the most difficult times. The reason why I find that fascinating is I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm even answering the question for myself is because something within my heart or my mind or in our culture says, well, I'll take that step of faith or I'll take that step of belief when everything is right in my life. When things are perfect, then I'll grow in my faith in ways that I haven't grown before. So Jesus, I will trust that you will provide for me when there's enough money in my bank account. And once there's enough money in my bank account, then I'll take that step of faith to trust that you'll provide, right? Or God, if you'll just allow me to be accepted by people, these friends, this group of people that that I really want to be accepted by, if I can be accepted by them and kind of be in the in crowd 
then I'll take those steps of faith and I'll grow in ways that I've never grown before. Or God, if I can just have beauty and health, like other people have beauty and health, and I'm not suffering like I am, or I'm not struggling like I am, then my faith will go to new plateaus that they've never reached before. And I just, sadly, even looking at this passage, I just don't think that's true. I mean, if that was true, if that was true, that ideal circumstances made our faith grow to new levels, then Hollywood should be filled with some of the deepest, richest faith in the world. Think about it. They have all the money that you're hoping to get to and then you'll trust and believe in God, right? They have all the money. They have health and beauty. They have fame and acceptance from people. And yet, there's only a few that have any kind of rich faith. Now, what I think this passage is showing us in multiple ways is that oftentimes, oftentimes, the best soil for our faith to grow isn't ideal circumstances, but it's in the crucible of crisis. Our faith will grow in greater and deeper ways in the crucible of crisis than it ever will on the perfect days. So let's look in John chapter six, starting in verse one. This is what the word of the Lord says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Verse four is a little kind of seems weird and out of context. We'll get back to that in a second. Verse five, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where, to be, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, they're about to eat, so he gives thanks, which is why we pray before our meals, right? Then Jesus distributed those to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may go to waste and be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw that he had done this, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, the disciples went down by the sea, got into the boat and started across the sea of Copernicus. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because the strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, 
do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Pray with me. Lord, we start by thanking you for your mercy. Lord, your mercy that is new every morning. God, it met us today and we, we needed it. And so Lord, thank you for your mercy. Also thankful, thank you for your promises that are true. Lord, everything that you said will come to pass. And thank you for that, that we can find rest and peace and trust in that. And Lord, I ask today, I pray that you would give us the faith to know you and the faith to trust in you. We confess that our hearts wander from you. And so Lord, would you seek us out today and draw us near? Would you increase our faith through life circumstances? It's in your name we ask. Now let me invite you. Let me invite you to pray now that God would help you take whatever that next step of faith is for him today. In this moment of silence, pray that God would speak to you through his word that you would follow in faith. Pray now. And then let me invite you to pray for someone else who you know has been struggling through life's pain and pressures and has struggled with their faith. Would you pray for them right now this morning? Jesus, help us to believe that you are the son of God and in believing that you would give us life, I pray, amen. All right, well, this passage is full of stressful moments and I want us to kind of slow down and unpack a little bit of those to see the stress of this moment because we read it and we're like, oh, this is something we're familiar with. Jesus feeds the 5,000, but this is a moment of pressure and stress in the life of Christ as well as the disciples and even this crowd. I mean, think about it. There's a hungry mob, a hangry mob, if you will, coming there, and there's a lack of food. Then we see at the end that there's a storm that's on the sea that's keeping them from moving forward, and there's struggling disciples trying to row to move forward. They're struggling. There's stress. What we see in both of these accounts, both of these moments, is that Jesus does not waste these moments. He uses them. He uses them in order to grow faith and belief because that's what our God does. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so I know that some of us today need to take that step of faith to know Jesus and some of us need to take that step of faith to trust Jesus more. And we see both of them in this passage. The first thing I want us to grasp is that Jesus or God uses life's pressures to increase your faith. To increase your faith. I mean, think about this. This moment of having 5,000 men, and, and the important thing about that is when they counted at that time, they would count households. So they would count the man of the house to know. So this is families, right? Most scholars say that there's somewhere between 10 to 20,000 people here that were in this moment. That's a lot of people. I mean, anytime you get 5,000 people, it's stressful, but 10,000 and 20,000 people together, 
that's a lot of stress. And then put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Jesus is like, hey, I want you to feed them all. What? Like, you want me to feed all of those people? Like, how? Like, how are we going to do this? Like, that's a stress-filled moment. But what I love about this this miracle that Jesus does here is it's repeated in every gospel, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are, quote this. That's the only miracle outside the resurrection that's quoted in all four gospels. And the reason why that's helpful for us today is because each one of those tells us a little different context piece that we need to know about the story. It actually highlights a little more of the stress that's in this moment. The book of Matthew tells us that Jesus has just found out that his forerunner and friend, John the Baptist, is dead. Right before this moment happens, Jesus has the sorrow of a friend that he has lost that's in his heart. Any of, the, any of you that have lived through that, like that's, that's a moment of pressure, right? That sorrow. And the Gospel of Matthew actually tells us that Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd a little bit so he can refresh because he's tired and he's sorrowful. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus sees this crowd coming, he looks at them and his heart breaks in this moment because they are weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. What does that mean? Jesus looks at these people and he knows that they don't have belief. The last time he was in Galilee, people came to him and they're like, we want a sign, show us a sign. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're here because you want to show, not because you believe that I'm the Lord. And so his heart breaks as he looks at this crowd of people who are filled with disbelief. I mean, 15, 20,000 people he looks at and he's like, man, they, they don't believe. They're here, they're here for the show. And then in verse four, it tells us something in, in, in John's gospel, really specific. In verse four, it says, and the Passover is at hand. Like, if you were to take verse four out of this passage and read it, like, you wouldn't even realize it was not there. Like, Jesus went up on the mountain when he sat down with his disciples and then skipped to verse five, and then lifting up their eyes and seeing them coming, right? That would make sense. So why did John, with his limited amount of paper and his limited amount of words, put in here, verse four, now the Passover, the Feast of Jews is at hand. What John is showing us that is that Jesus knows what is ahead. And this marking of this is the Passover means it is one year until Jesus will give his life on the cross for your sins and mine. This is the one year marker because Jesus died at Passover. So Jesus, in this moment, his own pressure, his own suffering, his own stress in his life could have said, nope, let's pull back. Nope, nope, let's not move forward in this moment. I mean, picture the pressure that Jesus is under. He has a friend who has died. He has the pressure in this moment of a crowd who is weary and scattered. He has the pressure of what is to come as he thinks about the cross. But instead of running away, he leaned in in this moment. He leaned in to grow faith and belief. And yes, he does it in the sense with the masses, but I love how Jesus focuses in on one man. One man in this moment. You have a crowd of 20,000. He sees them coming. And look what it says in verse 5. Seeing the crowd coming, Jesus said to Philip, to Philip, where are we to, to buy bread so these people may eat? 
And he said this to test him. Now for me, the beauty of this moment is that Jesus is struggling internally. He's got a lot going on. The sorrow of a friend, the cross ahead of him, he's got a lot of pressure in his life. And he could have just bought in and said, no, I'm going to focus on me right now. But he doesn't. And he doesn't just say, well, now we're just going to focus on the crowd. It says he looked at Philip specifically. He looks at Philip's doubt, Philip's lack of faith in this stressful moment. And he says, Philip, you, specifically Philip, what are you going to do? I mean, it doesn't say that Jesus in this moment said, hey, Andrew, Philip, John, Peter, where are we going to find food to, to feed all these people? In verse 6, it says that Jesus said this in order to test him. It doesn't say that Jesus said these words in order to test them, the disciples, or say this to help the crowd. Jesus said this to test him. I am so, so thankful to have a God that cares about my faith. And he specifically cares about your faith. So often we come in here and we're like, let's talk about our faith as a church and a community. And God does care about that. Absolutely. But in this moment of a miracle that's quoted in every single gospel, Jesus leans into this moment. He's like, yeah, this is for you, Philip. I care about your faith and your struggles and all these stresses that are around you pushing in. Where is your faith? Where are you placing it? I love it. He said this to test him. Let me just say a couple things about that statement specifically. He said this to test him. A lot of times we go through trials and pressures in our lives because God is directly testing us that we would grow and increase in our faith. And that's one of the reasons why trials and pressures come into our life. But sometimes we have trials and pressure come into our life as a result of our own sin. I've heard people say, well, God's just testing me. No, maybe you're in sin, you need to repent, <laughs> and God is disciplining you right now. That's what he's doing, so that you would take that step forward in faith and to trust him. Or another reason why trials and pressures come into our life is because we're in a broken world and somebody else has sinned. We live in a broken world. And so sometimes you, you have a coworker, you have a family member that has sinned against you and it hurts you. You haven't sinned in this moment, but they have sinned against you. And so there's this pressure and the stress that's going on in your life. And whichever category you're in, whatever category you're in, you need to know that God does not waste those moments. God doesn't waste them. If God is testing you like he's doing Philip, it's in order to grow your faith. If you're in sin and God is disciplining you, God's word says it's because he loves you. He doesn't want you to stay in that sin. He wants you to have life and life everlasting. Or if you're in this moment where there's sin that's spilt or spread up on you from somebody else's life, Jesus cares about that too and he's coming to fix the brokenness of this world. Jesus does not waste any of those moments in our lives, but he uses them to grow in our faith and trust in him. And that's what he does in this moment for Philip. He says it to test him. And Jesus says, why or where are we going to find this food? And Philip's response is honestly some of the most sarcastic words that we see any of the disciples say to Jesus. Jesus is like, where are we going to get bread? And Philip responds in verse 7, he says, 200 denarii? If we bought that much bread, it wouldn't be enough for everybody to get a pinch off of here and eat. Like, there's no way. I mean, when he says the statement, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread, 
if we kind of took that money and applied it today, it would be something like this. Jesus, we don't have $35,000 to go buy bread. And even if we did, where are we going to go buy bread like that? I mean, hey, 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 Peter, do you, do you have $35,000 in your pocket that you forgot about? No, 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 no. Okay, Matthew, what about you? I mean, you're the tax collector. Do you have $35,000 just laying around that we forgot about? No. I mean, that's what's happening in this moment. There is sarcasm coming from Philip's heart of disbelief. And so he's like, there's, there's no way. See, where Jesus asks, where are we going to get this bread? Philip responds with, it's not possible. But that's not what Jesus asked. Jesus didn't ask, is it possible? He says, where? Where are we going to get it? It's true, it is impossible to feed these people. So now you've got to ask the question, well, where are we going to get it? Where? And I love Andrew here because he speaks up because I guess he's here in the conversations that's, that's happening between Philip and Jesus. And at least he's honest with his disbelief in this moment because in verse eight, it says one of the disciples, Andrew, says to him, well, here's a boy who has five loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many people? What are they for so many people? At least he's like, here's a little bit, Jesus, but it's not going to go far. Like, there's no way this is going to fill the people's hearts and stomachs. It's just not going to happen. You see, Jesus sees their doubt and their lack of faith. And he doesn't say, well, you know what? It doesn't really matter that much if they grow in their faith. Jesus didn't step back in this moment and say, well, man, you know what, Philip, you've already confessed me as, as, as Lord and Messiah. Man, you did that back in earlier chapters in John, John chapter 1. Man, you don't need to push forward in your faith and trust in me anymore. You are, you, you've got enough in you to be saved, to go to heaven. So that's good enough faith. You're going to go to heaven one day. And that's not what Jesus does in this moment. He doesn't look at them and say, well, man, you got a lot of pressure. you got a lot of stress. you got a huge crowd. Man, I hope you guys can figure it out. I guess you're just going to have to live with, live with this crushing anxiety and depression in your life but that's okay because at least you have this theological faith in your mind that's good enough to take you to heaven and that's not what Jesus does in this moment because Jesus doesn't just care about saving faith he cares about the faith that sustains us daily and he looks at these men who are struggling with this sustaining faith and he leans into them and he's like guys I want you to listen I want you to think about this moment where are we going to get food for these people. See, Jesus cared about Philip specifically that he leans in to test him and to ask him that question. He responds to the disciples in a very tangible way of this is how we're going to respond. This is how we're going to provide for them. You see, the disciples were so focused in on all of the stress and pressure that they're missing looking to Jesus in this moment. And for many of us, we sit in this room, we sit in this room right now and we look at all the stress in this world and all the pressure and all the chaos and we think, man, Jesus probably doesn't care about my faith. He's probably too busy and concerned with all these other cares in this world that he does not care about me. And you need to see from this passage that that is not the case. It's not the truth. Jesus leans in in the midst of this chaos and this crisis and this pressure to help one man in his faith. And in helping him one man in his faith, it echoed into all these other people's lives. Jesus cares about your faith. And he cares about my faith. He does so much that 
with all these other things going on in his own heart, in his own life, as well as the crowd there, he still loved and cared for Philip. I don't know what kind of cares you bear today or what suffering or pressure you're going through, but Jesus wants to use that time to grow your faith in him. And one of the ways that he will do that is by showing you your inability. He'll show you your inability to handle that pressure. This is what he does. This is what he does in this passage. God uses life's pressures to show how he can use the insignificant to do the significant. The insufficient to do the sufficient. This is what Jesus does. He says, where are we gonna get this food? And Andrew's like, I have no idea, but here's a boy that could possibly help us out with five loaves of of bread and two fish. Now think about this. Jesus in this moment of stress and pressure is using the insignificant. He uses a boy, a boy. Remember, they didn't even count the boy in the number of people that were there. They're like, we have 5,000 head of the households here. We have 5,000 men. They didn't even put his name in this passage. I don't know what happened. Maybe John later is talking with some of the disciples and he's like, hey, you remember when like Jesus fed the 5,000? Yeah. What was that boy's name that like gave us his, his, his lunch? I don't know. I can't remember. I mean, you look at this moment, he's seemingly insignificant and yet he plays a huge part in this miracle happening. God used the insignificant to do the significant. And we also know that this boy is probably from a very poor family. He's not even using the elitist people. And the reason why we know that is because it says he has five barley loaves. That matters a lot because we think five loaves and we're thinking like sunbeam bread, you know, like the cut bread, like that's what it looks like. It's nice and it's white and it's clean. Barley loaves, that's what poor people used at that time to eat. I mean, one writer in the 16th century talked about barley loaves and he's like, in England, we don't eat it. We feed it to our horses. It's beneath us. I mean, this was low-end bread that they had this moment. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's good enough. What you consider as your lowest and insignificant, yeah, I'll use that. I'll use a boy and I'll use barley loaves and two fish, two little sardines. I'll use that to do something amazing, something significant. I will use it. Now this boy right here, honestly might have the greatest faith of anyone in this section that we just read. I mean, the disciples are struggling. How is this gonna happen? What are we gonna do? But this boy chooses to give everything to Jesus. I mean, he could have said, well, guys, I'm gonna hold on to two of my pieces of, of bread and I'll give you one of the fish, but you can't have it all. But that's not what he did. He, he believed in Jesus and had faith in Jesus in some sense to say, here, you can have it. It's all yours. It's not mine anyway. Take it. And he not, might not have been able to use those exact words, but his actions sure showed it. In verse 11, it actually says that Jesus took the loaves. Let that settle in for a second. Jesus took from this kid, right? Took from him. And he had faith to trust Jesus with it. And it's because he gave it to Jesus, because he gave it up, he ended up eating far more than he ever would have had he kept it. The fact is, because this little boy let go of what he had 
and put it in the hands of Jesus and says it's yours. He had an incredible feast. He ate much more food than really existed had he never given it up. He was filled and not only filled, but everybody around him was filled because he gave it to the Lord. Because he lost control of it, because he put it in the hands of Jesus, he had far, far more than he ever had before. You see, Jesus, with his hands and his power, takes the insignificant and it becomes significant. You see, Jesus didn't just bless this five loaves and two fish and say, well, everybody gets a pinch now and it's going to fill your stomach like lambless bread or something like that. No, everybody ate and had as much as they wanted, verse 11 said. There's even some left over, 12 basketfuls. 12 basketfuls, why 12 baskets? Because of the doubting disciples' hearts would all sit there and hold a basket full of bread that they thought was impossible. Jesus is using these moments, using these moments to grow their faith and he's using the seemingly insignificant to do a miracle. Now let's rest in the reality of this moment because this is a true story. This is not a make-believe, it's not a fairy tale. This is a true moment in the history of time. And this boy had a choice. He could have kept all of this for himself, right? He prepared it, or his mom did maybe. Mom put together my, my lunch for today. I've got it all right here. You guys didn't prepare for lunch. Stinks for y'all. I'm gonna eat, right? He could have said that. Or he could have, Hidden it away and be like, man, this whole crowd, if I show them my lunch, if I like unfold it and put it out here, they're probably gonna take it from me. So I'm just gonna hide it and just nibble a little bit at a time so they don't even realize that I have food, right? He could have hidden it. He could have done that. He could have had that mentality of, I've got mine. I don't care if they have theirs. He could have responded in that way. But then this miracle wouldn't have happened. And sadly, sadly, so many Christians live their life as this is mine, I don't care about anybody else. I don't care what happens to the rest of them as long as I have what I need. Just God provide what I need and, and that's all I care about. And so we hide what's been given to us, what we've been blessed with. And we don't share generously, we don't give to other people, we hide it and we put it away and we don't use it. When if we would give it to Jesus and we would use it for him, we would have far more. We personally would have far more. The, the masses are impacted because of this boy's faithfulness to allow God to use the seemingly insignificant. I mean, there are three main ways that we look at the stuff in our life, our money or our possessions, whatever it is. We think what's mine is mine. And that's what we think. And that's honestly one of the greatest sins of the American culture. What's mine is mine. This is selfishness. Or we look at our world and we say, hey, what's yours is mine. That's stealing. <laughs> and there's a third way. What's mine is God's. What's mine is God, and that's stewardship. And this is what this boy is doing in this moment. He's looking, he's like, here, Jesus, take it. It's just a little bit. I don't know what, what all it can do, but here, it's, it's yours. Oh, that we would have that kind of faith. May we have the kind of faith that says, I'm going to invest my life and my resources for the kingdom of God. And you might think, well, I don't have a lot of stuff. Neither did the disciples, neither did this boy. Well, I don't know if I have all the talents in the world and all the abilities to be able to do great things. Jesus isn't concerned about that. 
Jesus has given each one of us time, talent, and resources. Every single one of us. Think about it. Every single one of us has, has been given time. And that's the great equalizer. Every single one of us have 24 hours in a day. Rich, poor, uh, live in Africa, live in China. It doesn't matter. You have 24 hours in a day. Have you ever thought that God has given you a certain amount of seconds to live your life? How will you invest those seconds and those minutes and those days for Jesus? Will you invest it in the kingdom? Will you look and say, it's not much, it's not much. But the time that I do have, I wanna invest in the kingdom. Will you look at the abilities that God has given you? For many of us, we look at our talents and we think, well, we don't have all the talents. No, you don't. But the talents and the abilities that God has given you, it's a clue. It's a way that God is showing you how to glorify him, how he wants you specifically in your faith and in your life to be lived to glorify him. He didn't give you all the abilities, but he did give you specific ones to help the kingdom of God. Are you using those abilities or are you like, no, I'm gonna hide them under here. And maybe every so often I'll use them, but as long as I get mine, I'm good. Or are you having this faith to trust in him? How are you using your resources, your finances? How are you using them for him? Well, Ryan, I, I don't have much money. It's not about the amount. It's about the faith, the trust in the Lord that he can take the seemingly insignificant and do the significant with it. This is what God does in this passage. It's what God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. And we hear those things. We hear this challenge from God's word and a long list of excuses start to roll through our mind of why we can't do this. And the top of the list is time. I don't have enough time to do these things. I don't have enough time to love and to care for others or to serve and to give. I just don't have enough time to do those things. But the reality is we have enough time to do what we value most. We have enough time to do what we value most. I had somebody tell me a while back thinking about their time. I just want to be balanced. I want to be balanced in my time and all of my life. I want to be balanced in all these different areas from family to, to marriage to work. I just want to be balanced. And I was sitting here and I'm listening and in my mind I'm thinking, I don't want to be balanced in my life. I don't. I want to have priorities in my life. And what is most important gets the majority of my time. I'm not going to look at my yard and say, man, I love my yard. I hope to give my yard as much time as I give my family. Mm, yeah, let's make those equal. I want to look at my golf game and give as much time to my golf game as I give to the church. Like what? No, there's things that are more important, right? And those things that get the most important should get the most of your time. And so the excuse that we give all the time, I just don't have time. We make time for what is most important. Would we make time for Jesus? Would we make time for Jesus in our life personally and our church corporately? Or we'll say things like, well, I just need to understand more. I would do a lot more in investing my life for the kingdom of Jesus if I knew all the different areas in my life that God wants me to, to live out his will. Like if I just knew, should I sell my house or not right now? God, can you just tell me the economy future so I can know to sell higher? Low, wait, wait, yeah, as long as I can do that. Should I take this job or change jobs? Should I date this person or marry this person? Should I buy this car or not? Should I do all of these things? And so we get caught up in the, unrevealed will of God and we forget that God has clearly showed us many things that we should be living out in our life. Are we living those things out in such a way that people see it? Do people look at our lives and say, man, that person is a generous person. Man, they give. 
They give. I may, I may not understand why or how or what that looks like, but man, they are a generous person. Would somebody look at our life and say, man, they are a loving person. They're a forgiving person. Or is our hearts hardened by bitterness and anger? Are we looking and trusting in Jesus to use what we think is insignificant or too small to matter and saying, Jesus, I know that you can do more. You can multiply it and you can do far, far more than we can even think or imagine if we'll trust in you and grow in our faith in you. This is what Jesus is doing in this moment. He's highlighting that truth. And as he does this miracle, as he multiplies this bread and feeds 20,000 people, it's interesting. Verse 14, the people are like, man, this is a pretty good deal. Like, this guy gave us food to eat so much so that we were just like throwing some on the ground because we were so full, we couldn't eat anything else. Man, free food with no tax? Let's make this dude king. This is awesome. Let's take him and put him on the throne because if he can do this with some barley loaves, then what can he do with our stock market, <laughs> right? What can he do with our 401k? Let's put him in charge because he's the one that's gonna be able to fix all these things. And so verse 15, it says that Jesus knows that they're trying to take him and make him king by force. And so he withdrew again. Why? Why in the world did Jesus withdraw at this moment? Like Jesus is king. He's king over the whole universe. So why in this moment did he draw back? I mean, we know according to scripture that he's coming again and he'll reign on his throne. He'll put on that crown. So why not now? Why didn't Jesus say, yeah, guys, let's go ahead and let's take it by force and let me be king. Because Jesus knew that what the crowd needed and what we need far more than him to take the crown in this moment is for him to take the cross for us. Jesus knew, I don't need to be crowned in this moment. I, I need to go to the cross in order to take their sins on myself that they could be rescued and saved so that they could actually have faith that would lead to redemption and not condemnation. Jesus knew the cross is far better than the crown in this moment. Now, he will get the crown. We know that for sure. But in this moment, he's saying, no, I don't want the crown. I will take the cross in order to bring salvation to these people so that they would believe and trust in him. You see, what Jesus is doing in this last section, for kind of verses 15 through 21, is he's revealing what we need most. And this is the third point. God uses life's pressures to reveal what we need most to reveal what we need most. You see, both of these accounts have one truth, and it's that we need Jesus. This first moment where Jesus is like, hey, feed the 5,000, and the disciples are like, there's no way. That's impossible to feed 5,000 plus people with just a few pieces of bread and some fish. And Jesus is like, you're right. <laughs> you can't, but I can and so he does it. But then the gospel of Mark actually tells us that Jesus commands his disciples, hey, get in the boat and go across the sea. Well, Jesus commanded them to do that. Now, that should have been easy for them to do. They had sailed that sea many times. They had that as profession, that they would get in this boat and they'd catch fish. 
And they can't do that either. Jesus is like, you can't do the feeding of the 5,000? Nope, you can't. You need me. Oh, wait, you can't sail across the, the sea because of a strong wind in your face? Yeah, yeah, you can't do that either unless you have me. You see, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And here in this moment, as the disciples are struggling, they've been rowing for hours and they've just made it a short distance. And this is a moment of stress and anxiety. They're supposed to get to the other side and here they are, they're struggling. They got this pressure of like, how are we gonna get through the storm? We're getting nowhere. And Jesus comes and he speaks to them in this moment of struggle. And I love what Jesus says. And I want you to think about first what he didn't say. Jesus did not look at their struggles and their suffering and the pressure that they're dealing with and say, hey guys, don't worry. I heard a weather report. This storm's gonna pass. It's gonna pass. Don't worry. Just, just, just stick with it. Keep rowing. You know, there's light at the end of the tunnel or there's a civil lining in the cloud. Just keep your eyes focused on that. Jesus doesn't say this too will pass. It's not what he's saying in this moment. We do that a lot in our pain and our suffering. But we even know that it's cold comfort when we're in the midst of pain and suffering and struggle. You see what Jesus does and what Jesus says? Jesus never, he never minimizes the storm or the struggle of the disciples. He doesn't do it. And he won't do it for you either. Jesus never minimizes our storms. Instead, what he does is he maximizes himself. He maximizes himself. In their struggle, in their pressure, in verse 20, what does Jesus say? He says, it is I. It's me. Now, in the Old Testament, we know that the only one that can walk on water is God. The book of Job tells us that. That God treaded the waves. He walked on them. And here's Jesus walking on the waves saying, it is I, I am God. I am the one who is strong enough to both feed the 5,000 and help you get across the water. This statement, it is I, is an echo back to where God says, I am, that's my name. Jesus saying, I am God. I'm the creator and sustainer of all things, including your faith. And in his grace and in his mercy, he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we all desperately need to hear that in the midst of struggles and pressures. That's what Jesus says in this moment. Look to me, maximize me, and then don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This is the invitation that Jesus is laying out for us. We can do nothing apart from him. We need him for the saving grace in our life and the sustaining grace in our life. We need Jesus in every area of our lives. We need him for he is God. May we not be afraid. Church family, as we come to the Lord's Supper now, that's what we're remembering. That's what we're claiming. In this moment, when we take the Lord's Supper, we're saying, Jesus, I need you. I need you more than anything else. I'm desperately in need of you. You see, our, our morality cannot make us right before the Lord. 
our morality is not going to create a, a karma that helps us through pain and struggling and suffering. It doesn't work that way. What we do is we look to Jesus, the Lord of all things, and know that only he can sustain and strengthen us. And God's word is very clear as we come to the Lord's Supper. This is meant to remind us what Jesus did. Jesus could have taken the crown in that moment instead of the cross. And if he'd have taken the crown in that moment, then we would never have been saved. But Jesus, knowing in that moment, a year from that time, a year from feeding the 5,000, that he would lay down his life on the cross to forgive us of our sins. He knew it. And he chose to lay down the crown and to take up the cross. So if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you've never believed in that truth that Jesus took the cross for your sin and your shame, then I would just beg you to do that now. The whole book of John was written that you would believe and have life. He wrote this so that you would believe in Jesus. Would you believe in him today? For those of us that know Jesus, we look at this moment and it should affirm our faith and our trust in him that he died for our sins to forgive us of all of our sins. If we would look to him and confess, God's word tells us as we take this, we must confess our sins first and then we look at this as an assurance of our pardon, knowing that because we confessed our sins, because Jesus stood in our place on the cross, we could be forgiven. The scripture says, don't rush into this, but Take time to confess your sins and come to it with a pure heart. And so I wanna give us time as a church to do that today. Evaluate your life. Pray, God, would you search me and show me my sin that I can confess it and find your forgiveness. And after we do that, we'll take the Lord's Supper together to know we are pardoned by his blood and his body given for us. Let's take a few moments of silence and pray and confess our sins to him. Jesus, right now we confess our sins to you. We confess that we've seen headlines or we've watched news and we have been anxious and worried instead of prayerful and trusting in you. God, you told us not to worry and so forgive us of our sins of worry. 
God, I pray that you forgive us of our sins of complaining. Lord, this week you've provided for us and some of us have responded with complaints. It's not what we wanted or as much as we wanted. And so Lord, forgive us of the complaining heart that was in us and Lord, purify our hearts, purify our mouths that we would speak words of praise to you. God, forgive us of our fits of selfish anger, saying things to coworkers or our kids that we shouldn't. We said out of anger instead of out of love. Lord, I pray that you forgive us of those sins that we could walk in life and enjoy the pleasures that you desire for us to have. Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for dying on the cross, taking the cross, giving your body that we could be forgiven. We are not perfect, but we know that you are and you stood in our place. And so Lord, we look to you, thanking you for your death that gives us life. It's in your name we pray. Jesus said, the night before he was betrayed, he looked at his disciples and he said, I want you to eat this bread. I want you to do this in remembrance of me for I give my body for you. So church, let's do that now. Take in remembrance of him. And then he gave him a cup and he said, this is a picture of my blood that will be shed for you, which they didn't understand at that time. But when they saw him on the cross, they knew his blood was being shed for the forgiveness of their sins. So church family, let's look to that now and remember his blood that was given for you and for me, that we could be saved and forgiven. Take and remember. There is no better way than to approach this last song with this on our mind and in our heart, that Christ died for us, for his mercy is more. So let's stand and let's sing to our King now.